Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am delighted to host Dr. Lisa Ford, Professor of History at the University of New South Wales. You, dear listener, will know Dr. Ford as the author of prize-winning monographs, Settler Sovereignty, Jurisdiction and Indigenous People in America and Australia, 1788 to 1836, and Rage for Order, the British Empire and the Origins of International Law, 1800 to 1850, which was co-authored with another true luminary in the field of global legal history, Dr. Lauren Benton. However, in the next 45 or so minutes, we will be discussing Dr. Ford's new book, The King's Peace, Law and Order in the British Empire, fresh off the Harvard University Press, beautifully written and forcefully argued. In its pages, Dr. Ford traces how a new kind of British empire emerged out of the global age of revolutions. The book's case studies span the globe, illuminating how the gradual but unrelenting imposition of crown rule across the empire corroded the rights of British subjects, altered their relationship with sovereign power, and laid the foundations of the modern police state. In tracing the dramatic growth of colonial executive power, and the increasing deployment of arbitrary policing and military violence, the King's Peace offers important lessons on peacekeeping, sovereignty, and political subjectivity. Lessons that can enrich contemporary debates over the imbalance between liberty and security. Dr. Ford, welcome to New Books Network, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for that very generous introduction. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous research had led you to write the King's Peace. Uh, it seems that the book fruitfully merges the focal points of your earlier projects on settler sovereignty and imperial reform. How have these preoccupations joined uh, to make this latest project possible? Well, this book has actually been a long time in gestation. I think I promised to write it in 2010, which is an awfully long time ago. But um, in terms of how it emerged out of my prior work, I think, as you pointed out, I have a pretty clear interest always in the way that law and order unfolds on colonial peripheries, but also the tension between law and order over time. Now, it seems to me that there's always been a massive gulf between high-level intellectual and legal histories and the way that everyday orders unfold in places, which is not to mean that people don't talk about law, that they're not structuring their actions within their idea of law. But I've really always been interested in how practice and ideas are misapplied, how how big ideas about sovereignty and jurisdiction and 
unravel in practice. And I guess all of my work's been about that in some way or other. I've always liked places where imperial claims don't quite work. And I like looking at the way that minor officials and ordinary people interact with law. Um, I guess it comes down to that sort of idea of vernacular constitution and constitutionalism that Laurie and I played with in Rage for Order. Um, so there's that central interest in all of my work. But the other way in which this has been a long time coming in my work is just simply through making sense of archives I've been looking at for a long time. I was originally going to write my dissertation, the, the work that underpins settler sovereignty, about pre-revolutionary America. So I'd already had a look at those archives and in the course of one of my many visits to the, to the National Archives in London, I pulled out what those people who work in this field will know are actually disintegrating volumes of correspondence before the American Revolution. And I was just so struck with how worried officials were about order in pre-revolutionary America. And at the same time, I was looking at materials about New South Wales in the 1830s and the huge difference in the way that they understood the parameters of their capacity to manage disorder was so striking that I think ever since I've been wondering how to make sense of that change over time. And this book is the attempt in some ways. The book successfully weaves together five far-removed historical locales, or small stories, as you put it yourself, to erect a narrative of, of massive global legal and political change. Uh, would you please elaborate on the interplay between the local and the global in, in your innovative methodology? I think it's a complex interplay um, because in some ways what we see in this book, what the story I've told is such a clear overarching narrative of change over time, um, which would suggest that there's some sort of master plan. But what I'm trying to do at the same time is to draw people's attention to the way in which the outlines of that plan grew, right? There was no master plan. It was, it was a series of compromises that met specific needs in specific places over time that grew into a model that then was more consciously deployed. Um, the, the clearest example of that is to the constitutional change, the constitutional shift from having local legislatures in places like the colonies of North America and even most of the colonies conquered in 1763 towards a situation where governors were given new power to govern without a local legislature or eventually with a low, uh, an appointed really small council of legislators, which became a model um, which was prevalent throughout the British Empire until the mid-19th century. So, um, but if you start with my first case study in Boston, those dusty old volumes I was telling you about reveal a really clear sense that the constitutional limits on particularly the Massachusetts governor's powers um, to manage disorder were untenable and needed to be changed. And it wasn't just the National Archives, it's all through the Shelburne papers, this sense that things were out of control 
in pre-revolutionary North America. They had different systems of government in distant places, but the peculiar constraints in Massachusetts became a focal point for conversations about what should happen, not just there, but elsewhere. So those local crises of playing with, with disorder on the streets of Boston before the revolution galvanised a sense among people at very different levels of government, locally in Massachusetts, in the colonial army, General Gage, and in um, the Board of Trade, and in Parliament to some degree. Different people were starting to talk about how to manage, how to reform empire in a way that would shore up capacities to keep the peace. That anticipates my, my, my following question. Uh, at our point of departure, a pre-revolutionary Boston, the British crown appears powerless in the face of the public's efforts to keep the peace on their own terms. How did the trauma of sedition and revolution in North America provoke the imperial center into reclaiming prerogative as a linchpin of what you call a global counter-revolution? It was already in discussion, I think, in the 1760s, uh, well before revolution broke out. The problem of everyday peace, again, particularly there, but also throughout the other American colonies, had caused real issues and real concerns. Another key problem was Indian country. So over the um, boundaries to the west of Massachusetts, but New York, Pennsylvania particularly, Virginia, Concerns about how you could manage free settlers who wanted to move into space in defiance of law were confounding everybody because the existing institutions weren't working. And there were institutions that haven't gone away that were never given up on, but there was a way in which the courts weren't managing, partly because of juries refusing to prosecute people. They weren't managing to stop people from committing violence on frontiers. In, on the streets of Boston, uh, justices of the peace who were actually appointed by the governor weren't brave enough to exercise their jurisdiction to, to keep people in order. So um, there were already conversations about the failure of institutions and how to shore them up well before revolution broke out. Uh, but then when, and, and this is why a really important um, landmark, before, even before the revolution, is the Massachusetts Act. I mean, it's right at the moment, right? So there, you can have a conversation about when, when revolution starts in America, because 1774 is very late in the day in some ways. But the Ma- Massachusetts Act's key, key um, tenant is to actually embolden the crown. If the parliament passes an act that gives the governor more power to order, to dismiss magistrates who aren't doing their job, to act as the chief magistrate of the colony. So that, that's a big shift that is has been thought about for some time as being implemented at the very outset of the American Revolution. So the key thing is uh, the crown is seen as the answer to the problem, right? An emboldened crown who can act in defiance of a legislature at that moment is seen as a solution. But then at the same time, we have the Quebec Act in the, the very same year that actually denies a legislature to a majority free white settler colony, which is a huge move. 
that I think shows just how powerful that model of prerogative rule has become in a very short time. Yes, and in your reading, Quebec be- becomes a model of governance to be rolled out throughout the empire after the American Revolution. What made such crown colony templates so appealing in an era of significant imperial expansion? Partly that is, um, it's, it's a matter of circumstance and design. Um, now, the design element, I guess you could trace, and I do this to a certain degree to New South Wales, which is such a quirky place, set up in 1788 as a convict colony, it was never going to have a proper constitution, although there were debates about whether or not to make it a military garrison or whether to give it some rudiments of government. Um, It's really poorly set up with a combination of legislation and just simple um, instructions for governments and charters, etc. But it sets up a really powerful governor with absolutely no checks and balances. So that's one marker. But what happens next is really the Napoleonic Wars and the the French Revolution and that era of war between um, the French Revolution and 1815 gives Britain a lot more colonies suddenly, but they're, they're not properly conceded and governments aren't properly set up. So in some ways, the Crown gets to experiment without any reference to long-term principles, without thinking about the future. So colonies like Trinidad are set up on a wartime footing and time and time again, the British Empire basically holds back from giving it a settled constitution. So it kicks the can in all of those colonies that conquers during that period and only really turns to them again, as Laurie and I showed in the 1820s, when they start to think about what sort of stable constitutional system they should settle. And the one they settle is, is the governor and council, which is basically what they'd implemented anyway in a makeshift fashion, but it harks back to the Quebec Act. In fact, very recently, since I finished Rage for Order, we found a few conversations in the in 1825 suggesting that they don't they're not just harking back to the Quebec Act they're harking back to the Regulatory Act of 1773 which is really interesting administrators in the 1820s are thinking about India when they're thinking about what the future of empire would look like and it's a future that's about gubernatorial rule you insist that the challenges of colonial peace altered subjecthood in ways that were broader than race and and racial markers. How did the conundrum of keeping an uncivil peace in that quintessential slaveholding colony of Jamaica transform the entire population's ties, white, free, black, and enslaved, to the imperial metropole? So when I first thought about this book, I wasn't going to put Jamaica in it. But then it became clear that it was such an important place. And it's in some ways, it's an awkward fit in this long story. But what Jamaica shows us, I think, is that slavery, particularly Caribbean slavery, with the incredibly um, imbalanced numbers of slaves to masters, um, created a situation where everybody's subjecthood needed to be bent and stretched 
to keep what was really an impossible peace, an incredibly violent and awful peace, which was intensely militarised. And this marks, I think, the Caribbean, and I'm going to do some more work on this in the next few few years, I think that um, the impossibility of slave peace marks the Caribbean out at a pla- as a place where the boundaries between civil and military order were long since stretched, even though most of them were legislative, the old colonies at least were all legislative colonies that were self-governed. But Jamaica in particular, and there's been the most work on this, so we know the most about it, has spent more than any other colony paying the British military to station soldiers there, which would have been something that would be completely untenable, well, which was untenable or became untenable on the mainland. Um, But also uh, the other ways in which the peace was really transformed in Jamaica was their increasing resort to martial law, which was not something that happened a lot elsewhere. And again, I'm doing more work on the 18th century now. Um, My next project will be about martial law and empire, Um, but particularly tracing its origins in this period. But uh, you can see it in the legislative history of Jamaica and you can see it in their records, particularly from Taki's Rebellion in the 1760s. There was an ongoing and increasing, like every second year collaboration between the local legislature and the governor to declare martial law in the colony whenever there was any, even at Christmas time, but whenever there was any hint of a slave rebellion. And that's so interesting. And what also became clear, became clear, and John Collins' work I think helps to bring this out, is that martial law in Jamaica was not just about suspending law so that anything whatever could be done to keep slaves at peace and just the horrific violence that ensued after the whiff of slave rebellion is is just so horrendous but what it actually did was give the governor power to mobilize masters and free people of color so we see some hints of this during Taki's rebellion where um, martial law was used to force people to mobilise in different places and to punish people who weren't doing their share in suppressing slave revolt, but also to ensure that slaves could be punished by the state after rebellion had ceased, which was, of course, not in the economic interests of masters. So that becomes a really interesting and complicated example of ways in which the subjecthood of some of the most, in some respects, privileged people in empire, slave masters who had the power to police humans, to injure humans, and often even to kill humans with impunity who belong to them, in inverted commas. Their liberties were in other respects much more restrained because of their responsibility to keep the slave peace. It's a complicated story, but it's one that fits with the imposition of crown rule in Quebec. And it also fits with the sorts of conversations about constitutional order and the obligations of free white men in New South Wales much later. 
So, I mean, status is very important here. Race is very important here. But it all fits into what I, an idea that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is the way in which legally vulnerable people become vehicles of different kinds of order, probably always, but certainly in the British Empire in this period. And, and there you draw a wonderful parallel between um, the Catholics of Quebec and and white masters, for instance, or or free people of color in, in Jamaica. Could you elaborate a bit on the destinies of of those French French speaking Canadians in the aftermath of the Quebec Act? Well, there's something I need to do some more work on too, but. What's really interesting, and this comes out of Hannah Muller's wonderful book about the moment of the 18th century when British, the British Empire was turning its mind to how to incorporate the colonies that it conquered in the Seven Years' War. Um, the Catholic population of Quebec was seen, certainly by the early governors, as potential allies. They were incorporated to a certain degree into government. You can see something similar happen in the Cape after 1900, where the Dutch elites became allies of British governors, particularly the very colourful governor, Somerset, who was um, became the object of great scandal in the 1820s. So local elites of different faiths, um, from different legal backgrounds, you know, uh, French law in the case of Quebec, Dutch law in the case of the Cape, were mobilised to a certain degree. They were promised certain benefits. In the case of Quebec, after the Quebec Act, it was the reinstitution of French civil law and the protection of elite tenures, um, which were complicated and difficult um, and made it harder for British Protestants to break in and to make money in Quebec, which is why they were going there. So there was an effort to forge an alliance with French Catholics. But in the process, and what, what gets lost there is the fact that, um, yes, to some degree, the penal acts were suspended in Quebec, but the Quebecois were not given voting rights and they were not given a legislature, not for a good while, not for a generation um, after conquest. So there's an interesting way in which, yes, the Quebec Act tried to incorporate these people into empire. It uh, suspended laws that had, that would, that in, in the British, in the British Isles actually con constrained Catholic rights enormously. But it also constrained both them and their Protestant neighbours from what had been core benefits of, of settler colonialism in America, i.e. having a legislature and having a real say in government. Although, of course, some elites did, right? They were um, intimates of the governor, etc. But for the for everyday Quebecois, the Quebec Act did exactly what it did to Protestants, which was to cut them out of what had been seen to be core benefits of empire. And Quebec's variegated subjecthood and autocracy and Jamaica's martial law and racialized governance 
offered ingredients for a new kind of colonial peace. How is this experimental combination of professional policing and military peacekeeping forged into a solid amalgam of rule by exception in early 19th century Bengal, uh, something you've already mentioned before? Bengal is a really interesting case study here. And again, it's something that I've come to, like I've spent years not studying India, so it was past time to have a look at Bengal. Um, So Bengal is actually in some ways the first constitutional experiment of the 18th century because the Regulatory Act was passed in 1773. But, of course, it was setting up a, a, a system of government putatively still under Mughal sovereignty. So the long history of Bengal up to 1857 is one of a really ambiguous transition from Mughal to company rule, which waxed and waned. That, of course, created a situation where there was much more space to play in because uh, the Regulatory Act set up a Supreme Court, but that Supreme Court had notoriously restricted jurisdiction and to the degree to which those justices tried to extend what they saw as the protection of British law beyond company employees and people living in um, Bengal, um, uh, people living, sorry, uh, somebody's just started to play the piano next door, Vlada. Can you hear that? So we'll have to be slumming the edit out. <laughs> okay, that's good. They play beautifully. But anyway, um, I digress. So um, going back to your question, just give me three seconds to recalibrate. Um, I think actually what I need to do is to suggest that exception is not perhaps quite the right term for this and I I know that um, because what I do want to emphasize even in the case of Bengal is that these policing regimes that are set up there are crafted in terms of crisis but they do bear some relationship to the sort of legal constitutional regimes in which they unfold, right? They are not always lawless. Sometimes I think that the Bengal example, the case um, the case of Mr Ernst and his concerns about the incarceration of people on suspicion of crime, there's real unease in the Executive Council about the sorts of ordinances passed in Bengal to allow these things to happen. There's even concerns about whether or not they're strictly within um, the, the, the ambit of proper exercises of, of the governor's power or the governor and council's power, but they're close and they are actions undertaken under colonial law. So throughout all of these examples, uh, officials are acting somewhere within the parameters of what they think are almost justifiable laws. And, and I think that's what's important about the, the process that I'm describing in the King's Peace. It's not just the state of exception. We're not talking about Agamben. We're not talking about Schmidt. We're talking about the work that law does and what law lets happen 
in these places. Now, of course, Bengal is a particular example because of the persistence of the, the Mughal sovereign, though that power is certainly waning by the early 19th century and continues to do so. Um, but nevertheless, the act of rounding up people who aren't even committed, who have, who aren't even necessarily suspected of committing crimes, right, um, in order to prevent Dequishi to try and stop the problem of of, um, of criminal uh, gangs stealing from people, in the course of like terrible privation, of course, the very effort to try and do that is a breach of fundamental ideas of due process under British law, but it's nevertheless unfolding under local regulations. So that distinction is really important in this book, the distinction between the, the, the growing gap between colonial rule and metropolitan rule and lawlessness and lawfulness. New South Wales is the culmination of your narration. There, a peculiar realignment of sovereignty, subjecthood and order uh, stripped white settlers of fundamental legal protections, all the while incorporating indigenous populace into the king's peace as citizens of an inferior order. To what extent was the, that penal colony emblematic of a new post-Napoleonic imperial order? Well, there's a couple of ways in which New South Wales is really important to this story, which is in some ways surprising because it's such a strange experiment, being a convict colony um, set up with a really broken constitution for many years. It's emblematic first because it's one of the first places to receive a post-Napoleonic constitution. Uh, So in 1823, the New South Wales Act is passed. It's passed after the first of the colonial commissions of inquiry is sent out to take stock of empire, um, particularly in places that Britain either founded just before the French Revolution or acquired during the Napoleonic War. And what they set up there is what becomes the template. You know, I've talked about templates in terms of Quebec, but New South Wales um, Parliament legislates for a governor who is to rule with an appointed council of legislators and who is to discuss his most important decisions with an executive council. And some version of this model is rolled out formally to a, throughout the empire um, in most places acquired during the Napoleonic Wars in the decades that follow. Now, that's not to say that a similar model wasn't already in place in a de facto way in most places. But what's really important here is that Parliament legislates to establish this for New South Wales and then usually the Crown imposes this system elsewhere where there are different constitutional regimes, particularly in conquered colonies where the Crown has the power to do so. So in that respect, New South Wales is emblematic of a new system of gubernatorial rule. But even more important for the purposes of the King's Peace story is the fact that New South Wales builds this new legislative council, uses new technologies of governance taken from all over the empire. Um, two really important examples are the um, are the um, 
Bush Rangers Act. Well, that's the most important example, which in 1830 gives pretty much anyone, not even the police, but private citizens, the right to arrest people um, on the suspicion of being bush rangers. Now, bush rangers um, are the Australian equivalent of highway robbers. They usually live in what we call the bush, which is the forest. Um, they're often escaped convicts, uh, which is part of the big breakdown of law and order in the colony in the aftermath of the the very regime changes that accompanied the New South Wales Act, which basically took a lot of convicts out of government employ, put them in private employ and sent them off into the frontiers where being in agriculture was supposed to reform them better, but actually they hated it, so they left in droves, causing a breakdown of law and order. So the Bush Rangers Act actually let any free white person be arrested, right? They were every free white person was suspected of being a bushranger, essentially. Now, this was taken straight from slave colonies, where in many slave colonies um, since the 18th century, it had been acceptable for constables, for other free people, to arrest people of colour on the assumption that they were slaves. So it's a really interesting moment where race is suspended you know, racial technologies from slavery are used against free white men in a settler polity. Um, military policing is another key example, which is taken from a bunch of places, but particularly Ireland. So um, from 1825, soldiers were seconded from the military and given policing rights. They were put on horses, they were armed, and they were riding around the frontiers looking for convicts, but also being given quite remarkable powers to manage in big inverted commas frontier violence. Um, and one of the reasons for that confusion between military and civil policing in New South Wales, which was discussed really openly, that's why it's such an interesting place, so often really explicit discussions are had about the constitutional ambiguities of law and order in this place. Um, but one of the reasons they were given such ambiguous powers is because, of course, and this was the story I told in Settler Sovereignty, it was not at all clear in the 1820s whether and what to degree um, the colonial state had jurisdiction over Indigenous people. They had started to exercise Indigenous uh, jurisdiction over Indigenous crimes against settlers sporadically from the very early 1820s. But the big moment when they decide that a colonial state has, in fact, got power to police Indigenous people is not until 1836. So this is a transition period, which in some ways, as in Bengal, I guess, that sort of legal ambiguity creates a space in which um, experimentation about the parameters of when and how violence can be inflicted to keep peace um, are uncertain and therefore there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of space to play in here and play being a very serious word in this circumstance, obviously.
Some three quarters of a century earlier, such a political legal arrangement would have been a, a laughing matter or a source of angry disbelief among the Protestant men of Boston. You conclude, in the era of counter-revolution, colonial order trumped liberty, justice, and equality. So if the king's peace remains lodged in the DNA of modern statehood, what lessons should we extract from, from your work? How can myriad legal arguments about empire help navigate our present-day dilemmas of human rights and, and security? Should they? I'm not sure if they answer too many contemporary questions, but I do think what is useful is to take law seriously in conversations about um, legislative power, about policing and about justice. And I don't want to draw clear parallels here because I don't know that they apply. But insofar as the King's Peace talks about how vulnerable subjects become purveyors of new legal orders, I think that there's a lesson there. I think that just as there were a myriad alien acts passed during the, in the um, age of revolutions and just as convicts uh, disorder became a sort of a way in which law could be recast to corrode civil rights. I think we have to watch the bottom line. Um, I think uh, you could look at parole rules. You could look at rules about protest today. You could look at um, the way in which foreign people travelling across borders can risk statelessness or risk being treated as being stateless. I mean, these are vulnerabilities that have ramifications, I think, for how everyone can be expected to be treated in the modern world. And that's a really long draw to bow to draw. But I think that um, the fact that so much of this happened within slightly altered parameters of what was possible and what was legal and a lot of those parameters were never snapped back, right? So there was never a moment again where we wouldn't dream of making the arguments. As I said, they were laughable, the arguments, sort of arguments that people in Boston made about their liberties. And when people make them now in America, they do so in earnest, but they do so without any purchase. Um, so... I think that those changes matter and I think that vulnerable people in law matter. But I think the other thing we need to look at is, is executive power matters and it has grown enormously in the last century. In fact, it probably never looked back from the early 19th century. So just being aware of the way in which legislatures empower executives in empire, I think, reminds us that... Um, particularly in places like America where a lot of public discourse sets itself up in opposition to a powerful government. At the same time, many of the strategies being passed to keep 
order on streets, particularly a racialized order, which is very clearly kept in America, are actually empowering states in ways that would be an anathema to the sorts of liberties claimed by the very people advocating those changes. So there's the big, big um, another big long draw, bow to draw. But nevertheless, um, I think the key thing to focus on in the King's piece is what work law does and what work legislatures do to empower these constitutional shifts that had ramifications for everybody's subjecthood. Fascinating. And finally, where has the King's Peace led you, Dr. Ford? What are you currently working on? I think you mentioned the themes of, of martial law and empire. Yes, well, I'm actually just finishing off a project with some wonderful colleagues, um, which is exploring colonial commissions of inquiry in the 1820s. Um, so that's project one, which is really moving back to themes from Rage for Order, but is a really interesting way um, to follow up this interest in legal, in constitutional transition and its nature and limits, um, and also looking more closely at its interface with British politics, which is something that I have neglected to a certain point to date. But then I'm launching back into a bigger project about martial law and empire, and I think that will very securely start in the 18th century. So I'm actually planning in September to spend a month in the British archives looking at council records from an array of Caribbean colonies to see how they thought about the distinction between everyday peacekeeping and martial law, because it is my strong suspicion that the Caribbean, I think as I've suggested in the King's Peace, became an engine of new ways to think about or blurring to, or to blur the distinction between military and civil order in empire. So that's the working hypothesis and that's what I'm off to have a look at. I, for one, am very much looking forward to whatever comes out of your workshop next. Uh, Dr. Ford, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining New Books Network. Thank you so much, Vladislav. It's so nice of you to spend time talking to me today. <laughs>